Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Ushers, come forward if you would. We'll share in our offering. I want to say to you again, thank you for your giving. Everything that happens here happens because of faithful people that give. If you're new or visiting uh, and you didn't come thinking about an offering, don't think about it now. But if you are new, I just let you know that we don't have some endowment that we draw upon. Everything happens here because people give. And so thank you. Thank you for participating in that. When you came in this morning, you received a, at least a card, if not a couple of them, for Christmas Eve. It has a different service times. We're hoping that you'll invite someone to come with you virtually all afternoon from 1 o'clock on. Uh, there are services between here and North Avenue. I would suggest to you and say to you, you'd be surprised who would say yes if you just asked them to say, hey, wanna, why don't you come with us to a, a Easter, Christmas, uh, Easter service? I a little ahead of myself there. <laughs> to one of our Christmas Eve services. And you'd be amazed at who might say yes if you just ask them to come. With a lot of choices. So please take these and use these and pass these around. Just a reminder, we do not have Sunday, we will not have Sunday services on Christmas Day. Christmas Day is Sunday. We won't have Sunday services because of a full slate of services on Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening. And then on uh, July, January 1st, it's going to be a tough day, folks. On January 1st, New Year's Day, that's where I was at, we will have one service, and that'll be at the 10 o'clock time, so you can kind of plan that accordingly. So there we go. Now, uh, we're going to start a series this week called We Need a Little Christmas, but before we talk about Christmas, we need a little bit of night to shine. I want you to see this video. This was the last time that we met in person. And this is our video, meaning all of the people that are there, they're our people, so you, should, might, you might recognize some folks. Just watch this. the limo ride. Or dancing with me. And dancing. Um, <laughs> I, I like I'm coming here a lot. What was the favorite part of coming here? We just saw um, Tim Tebow. Uh, the limo and the karaoke and the dance and hell. What was the best song they played? The best song that they played was Shut Up and Dance With Me. Your friend's good at dancing? Yes. Am I good at dancing? Yes, you are good at dancing. It's the first time I've heard that. When you have that put on, I 
feel like I'm a plane tonight. Night to Shine is in February, but right now is a time where we need to staff it and get it ready to go. We have a major push this morning. So out in the lobby, this, out in the lobby after the service, there's a table set up. Uh, we have uh, Hannah who is there who's overseeing Night to Shine. We have a notary there as well because one of the requirements for working at Night to Shine is a background check. And you can stop in there. You don't have to go to the church center. You can stop at the desk today afterward. So she can notarize it because that's what the law requires is an application notarized. They can do it right there get that taken care of. Uh, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, all the spots are filled. So all the people, all the guests attending are filled. We have a long waiting list. Now we need to go staff it with about 300 volunteers. So it's a significant number. And we need you to do that. We need buddies that will, that will dance if you can't dance or shouldn't dance. I'm one of those two. We have multiple other places for you to serve. Now hear this final word. We need you. We need 300 plus people to volunteer. Now, of course, we need you to do it for the sake of the night. I mean, if we don't have the volunteers, the night doesn't happen. So we need you to sign up for the night so that it can happen. But there's a piece that you miss. We need you to sign up because it is one of the most redemptive things that we participate in. We need you to sign up because it actually will be redemptive in your own life. We need you to sign up because it makes us better people. The people that participate in Night to Shine walk out of that night having been changed. And when you are changed because of giving of yourself to others, you impact the entire church. We need you to sign up for the sake of our own church, for the sake of our own hearts, our own growth, our own maturity. Um, you will be changed because of that night. So even if there's a line this morning, you have to wait a little bit, wait. Uh, we'd like to get this as settled as we can, of course, before the new year, because once the new year comes, we're weeks away, and there's a lot of other things that happen there. So if you can participate, that would be great. We're going to start this morning for the next couple of weeks, a series called We Need a Little Christmas. Now, let me begin as we're going to talk about the Christmas story this morning with a couple of statements. Now, oddly enough, a lot of people in the world, and even perhaps some people here today, either here because someone invited you or maybe watching online, a lot of people have a little problem believing the Christmas story. I mean, it's, it's such a remarkable story. It's, there's so much miraculous stuff around it that quite honestly, there's quite a few people who will say, I just can't buy into it. I just can't believe it. There's so many miraculous things around it. Let's be honest. Virgin birth, that's eh, pretty big. And so there's a lot of people that will say, I just don't know if I can believe it. It's, there's too, it's too miraculous. There's too many things around it. And I would say if you're there, I understand it is an incredible story. I would suggest that if you're out in the workplace and you're with someone who says, I don't know if I can buy the story, don't try to convince them. Just look at them and say, I got it. I get it. Because it really is quite an incredible story. On top of that, some critics through the years have used this argument as well. They said this, that it really isn't believable because it's not true. And then as proof, they'll say this. Did you know that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, out of the four Gospels, only two of them even mentioned the birth of Christ? They use that as part of the argument that if it was really, if it was true and the gospels are the writers that are following the life of Jesus, why wouldn't they all include the birth of Christ? Only two in, in, include that. 
the other two begin at year 30. But Matthew and Luke are the two that talk about the storyline of Jesus. And so some will use that as, as a reason to not believe. Some believe that the Jesus followers had to make up a story so that it's a make-believe story. They believe that somewhere along the way they had to make up some kind of incredible story how Jesus came into this world. So they created this story to give him some credibility. So that people would look and say, wow, this is something else. So they had to come up with some kind of myth around the birth of Christ. So I've said this before, I'll state it again and a little differently, and I'll use a quote from someone else to help make the point. Um, and I would say this, as we're walking through this series about Christmas and the Christmas story. Now, the Christmas story is one incredible story, I got it. But please hear this. The story of the birth of Jesus, as incredible as it is, Christianity does not hinge upon the Christmas story. Christianity hinges upon the resurrection story. Christianity is, is clearly founded on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not founded on how he came into the world. Now, please know it is an incredible story. And we love the story. We love the Christmas story. We like it for lots of reasons, but let's be honest. We like the look of Christmas. We like, you know, that idea we need a little Christmas. That song kind of fits because there's a lot of times where we feel like we do need a little Christmas because it seems like at Christmas people tend to be in a little better mood. They tend to smile a little more. They, there's a different spirit in the air. You walk in here, see all this, you kind of go, ooh, I like it. You do your own house. You've got your quiet moment. You've got your nativity scene. There's a sense to it that go, ooh, we love this. And it's a great story, but Christianity does not hinge upon the Christmas story. Just make sure you get that. In fact, I like the way Anley Stanley states it. He says this, if somebody can predict their own death and their resurrection and then fulfill that prediction and actually come back from the dead, I'm not concerned how they came into the world, just follow them. I like that. It really doesn't matter how Jesus came into the world. If you can predict your own death and then come back from the dead three days later, follow that guy. So now that's true, and I want you to, as a platform here, as a starting point, I want you to know that's kind of the key issue of Christianity is the story of Christ dying on the cross, coming back from the grave, and being alive today. But the Christmas story is still one to be talked about because it's actually incredible and it fits and fills in the whole narrative. So that said, the Christmas story is quite unbelievable. Um, in fact, when you know the backstory of the Christmas story, it becomes even more unbelievable. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, next couple of weeks, I'm coming to the backstory of the Christmas story. Now, remember, if you would, as we begin together, that the Christmas story does not begin with a young couple trying to figure out how in the world they become pregnant. It does not begin there. It actually begins with a couple who are worried that they're never going to get pregnant. The Christmas story doesn't begin with a young couple trying to figure out where to have the baby because all the hotels are full. It actually begins with a couple who are very confident that they're never going to have a baby. It's the backstory of Christmas that makes this story so remarkable. And it doesn't begin with angels singing to the shepherds in Matthew or Luke. It begins with God making a promise back in the book of Genesis, about as far back as you can get. In fact, it's a promise that I would say is an unbelievable, mind-blowing, incoherent promise that God makes. You think, well, God doesn't make incoherent promises. Well, not incoherent to him, but to the people receiving it, it was about as outlandish as it could possibly be. When he made that promise, they couldn't possibly have grasped it. Couldn't be possible. A promise that was seemingly impossible for it to come true, yet that promise sets up the Christmas story. 
That promise sets up the fact that we've got poinsettias and trees and lights and you have them in your home. It sets up the whole season of Christmas, a promise that goes back to Genesis. Now listen to this. It's this promise that makes the Christmas story actually believable. It's so unbelievable that it becomes believable. We'll talk about that. The promise that God made was about 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. And as I said, back in the book of Genesis. Now, what's interesting, Genesis is actually a historical book. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah in the, in the Jewish faith. Those first five books of the Bible, and specifically Genesis, is the history of the beginning of the Jewish nation. It's the history of the Jewish people. So accordingly, just a kind of a side note for you, accordingly, that story was handed down, was told, and compiled meticulously. The details were looked over, over and over and over again to make sure everything was right as the story of the beginning of the Jewish nation was passed along from generation to generation through thousands of years. And it's in this ancient document that we find an incredible promise made by God to a guy named Abram. Now, if you know the story, you know that somewhere in the story, Abram has his name changed by God to Abraham. So for the sake of argument, I'll just use Abraham's name through the whole thing. But at one point, it's Abram and switches to Abraham. And here's how that story begins to play out. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Bow your heads real quickly. Father, as we spend these moments together, we need your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. We don't need a history lesson. We need the pages of Scripture to come to life in such a way that it redeems us in this moment. And there are some of us here this morning who desperately need a redeeming moment. So we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us with clarity and with truth that would change us. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So God says to Abraham, listen, I want you to pack up your family. I want you to pack up all your possessions. I want you to leave. You're going to go to a land I'll show you. I can't tell you right now where it is. You just head in a direction. When you get there, I'll tell you that's it. Pack up and move. Now, we're not sure why God chose Abraham, and we're not sure why God chose Mary and Joseph either. If you ever hear a preacher, a pastor preach a sermon and tell you why God chose Abraham, just so you know, he doesn't know or she doesn't know. Uh, we can make some guesses, but the truth of it is we have no idea. Here's what we do know. We do, we do know that God is God and God gets to choose, right? And a lot of that won't make sense, but we know that God's God and he gets to choose and for some reason he chose Abraham. Now, in those ancient times, safety, health, protection, security, all of those things had to do with the fact that you had your clan and you stayed with your clan. You had your family, extended family, your aunts and your uncles, and you all stayed together because in that era, in that time in history, if you weren't together, you were vulnerable. So your strength and your protection was that the family grew, and as it grew, you stayed together, and you stayed there because that's where it's going to be safe. It was a very violent time. That's key. And what God says to Abraham is, I want you to leave that security. I want you to leave that protection. I want you to leave that safety, and I want you to leave. And he says, and if you leave, just so you'll know, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, 
What we also know, if we look back in history, we can see that where there were great nations, there were typically family lines. Kings had families. The families grew and grew and grew, which grew into nations. So we understand that. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And at that point, we're thinking Abraham's probably, he's 75 years old, and he doesn't have any children. And if you know the context of the day, you don't become a great nation without a family because that's the way nations are born. So Abraham could have been thinking to himself, great, great nation, I'm 75, I, I'm supposed to be a great grandfather, maybe just make me a father, because the whole great nation thing might be a stretch of a promise. I'm thinking he could be thinking that way, that's what I would think, but God's not done. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and on top of that, I'm going to make your name great. By great, it means I'm going to make your name famous. People are going to, everyone's going to know your name. Everywhere you go, people will know your name. They may not know a lot about your name, but if you've ever heard the song Father Abraham, there you go, promise fulfilled. We know the name. And he said, I'm going to make your name so that everyone knows the name of Abraham. And not only will I bless you, but he says you're going to bless others. Now this part of the promise, a blessing to others, would have made no sense to Abraham at all. That on top of me blessing you, you'll bless other people. Again, you have to know the historical context. And the context of the day is this. This time in ancient history was a time of violence, not a time of blessing. It was a very violent time. In fact, one of the things that people oftentimes react to when they read the Bible, and I've had many people who have said, hey, begin reading the Bible. They want to have a meeting with me to say, how can you believe something that's so violent? The Old Testament, a lot of bloodshed. The Old Testament has a lot of, of extraordinary bloodshed and, and killing. And in this culture, that was the culture of the day. You, you blessed your children and you blessed your family, but you didn't bless other people. You defended yourself from other people. I mean, you either, it was either conquer or be conquered. That was the way it went. Yet God says, you're going to be a blessing. You're going to bless others. And then God adds to that, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In other words, he says this, and make sure you understand that statement. When he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you, he's saying to Abraham, listen, I'm going to be a part of your story. I'm going to be a part of your story, and I'm going to be a part of your children's story, and I'm going to be a part of your children's children's story, and your children's 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 story. I mean, he says this, I'm going to be a part of your story until the last chapter is finally done, sealed, and finished. You know what that means for us? It means that God is a part of your story. He's a part of your children's story and your children's children's and your children's 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 story. And he is going to be a part of the story of your life up until it's finished. Not until your life's finished, because even though our life might be finished here, the story's still being written. He says, I am going to be a part of your life. I'm going to be a part of writing your story right until the last chapter is finally done. And then God loses his mind completely. God says something that Abraham couldn't possibly have, have figured this one out or known or recognized or understood in any way, shape, or form. It's back in, in chapter 12, verse 3. At the very end of verse 3, it says this, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. I mean, at this point, God's over the top. That all the peoples of the earth, it means every people group, every tribe, every clan, every family, every language speaking people, every person in every nation that exists in this world, every single one of them, their lives will be impacted because of you, Abraham. You are going to bless every single person that lives in this world. 
All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This would have made no sense to Abraham at all. Question for you. You ever have something happen in your life where it makes absolutely no sense at all? And the answer to that is absolutely. In fact, there are some of you who are here this morning who are facing something in your life that makes absolutely no sense at all. And you'd give anything if somehow you had clarity. Abraham had no clarity. This made no sense that I'm going to bless the world through you. So, made no sense. People don't bless other people, not in this era. Nations aren't a blessing to other nations. Nations conquer other nations. Nations take other people and make them their slaves in that time frame. This made no sense. But Abraham made a decision. And Abraham's decision was to trust God even though it made no sense. That's his decision. Now, side note, if you read the story, uh, start in Genesis 12 and go through chapter 25, and you read the specific portion of the story, which I can't get into today, but it's quite an interesting story. And man, the grace Abraham had. So he leaves, he does it. So he packs up and leaves. And his nephew Lot, the Bible says his nephew Lot goes with him. And over this time period, uh, his, his wealth has grown. He's got more livestock than ever. He's got more servants than ever. I mean, he has maybe children, but he's got quite a, well, quite a bit of wealth and some power and prestige. And the Bible says that Lot's family is also growing and he's got more livestock he's got more stuff and in fact it says as they're traveling together they're beginning to get in battles together and not them personally but their shepherds are getting in the struggle because there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep and goats and all these animals and they're all competing for the same space and there's no room in fact they come to one point where Abraham says this he gets a lot and he says look at stand right here with me and I'm picturing a mountaintop and he look at this land ahead of us so here's the deal we, we can't keep arguing you know, our shepherds are in battle every day of who's going to get the prime spot. So here's the deal, Lot. Look at this whole area. As far as you can see, just pick a place you want to go. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Now, just so you know, anytime that we get a deal like that, we're sure we're being taken. Right? In fact, in, in our day, it would be like this. He says, you want to go to right? Go to left. And Lot would say, I'll go to the right. And he goes, okay, I'll go left. No, no, no. I want to go to the left because, because there's got to be something there. There's nothing there. I mean, the graciousness of Abraham's heart says, you just pick. You pick and we'll go the, I'll go the opposite direction. God makes and keeps his promises. So they left. They continued to prosper. No children, no nation being born here, but things go well. Now, at this point, I need to start going into some history for you. I'm going to make it as, as uh, appealing as I can and some good points along the way. Most of us go to history class and we're going, oh, no. But stick with me. This history is really good. And it ends incredibly well. But I've got to give you hundreds upon hundreds, thousands of years of history in minutes. So here we go. <laughs> so if you know the story, Abraham and Sarah have a son in their late 90s. And that son's name, name is Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, if you look at that family, it's quite the family. Esau was a guy that was all in the moment. He was the instant gratification uh, bottom line, he's the kind of guy that would sell his soul for a good meal. In fact, if you know the story, that's exactly what he did. For a good meal, he was hungry, sold his birthright. Jacob, the other one in the story, he's a liar and a cheat. 
On top of that, you have a situation where mom loves one son more than the other son, and dad loves the other son more than the other son. You are talking about one dysfunctional family, just so you know. Now listen, Christmas is coming, and your family is going to be gathered together. I want to encourage you to read this story, and you will feel so much better about your family. You read this story, and when your family's together in about day about the second hour of your family being together, you're going to say, you know what? We're not so bad when you read their story. It's just an incredible story. Jacob, a cheat and a liar. And Abraham has his moments as well. Remember this story from Abraham's life? He and Sarah are traveling through Egypt. And he's afraid that the Egyptian king is going to see how beautiful Sarah is. And what he's going to do is he's going to take Sarah to be part of his harem, his concubine, take him as one of his wives, and he'll kill Abraham because he's the husband. So you just get him out of the way. So Abraham comes up with a plan. Remember the plan? Sarah, here's what we'll do. We're going to pretend that we're, we're brother and sister. We'll tell everyone we're brother and sister. And that way, when the king comes and take you, he can take you and sleep with you, but I won't die. Good plan. This is one stellar guy here. I'm telling you, a dysfunctional family. Why God chose Abraham, I don't know. But God's God, and God gets to choose. So there's the plan. Now, back to our story. So Jacob has 12 sons. And many of you will know this story because out of Jacob's 12 sons, one of his sons' name is Joseph. Joseph and his coat of many colors. And Joseph's brothers hate him. Because he has this dream that he's going to be ruling over them one day. And so they sell him into slavery. And of course, I'm compacting this quickly. They sell him into slavery. He becomes a slave in Egypt. And you know the story over time. He becomes the second in command over all of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. And the famine comes in. And, Jake, and, and, and Joseph has overseen the stockpiling of food that has taken care of all the people. Well... Here comes the brothers who think that Joseph is dead. And here they come along and they have to actually go before Joseph to ask for food. It's a great moment. And Joseph looks at them. When they find out that it's Joseph, they're scared to death because they're thinking, man, second in charge, he's going to have us killed like we try to do to him. And Joseph says, no, 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 I'm not doing that because, see, what you meant for evil, God had a better plan. And so he has his whole family move to Egypt. So the whole clan moves to Egypt and they grow and they prosper. In fact, if you read the storyline, you will find that while they were there, they grew and grew and grew. All of the families grow over hundreds of years. They're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, they're getting to the size now where the Egyptians are scared to death. And the Pharaoh says, man, they're getting so powerful, they could overtake us. So what they do, they put them into slavery. They strip them of everything that they own. They take their belongings and they make them slaves. So God's promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. They are now a nation of slaves. Now, all of these people that are now part of the family of slaves, they know the story. They know the promise that God gave to Abraham. Imagine their thought process while they're working in slavery, while they're being beaten and killed and tortured, while they're forced to build bricks and hot ovens, while their daughters are taken to be wives of some of the leaders. Imagine what they're thinking. They're thinking this, yeah, nation, nation of slaves. Yeah, we are so blessed God's really good in his promises, huh? I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to others. Yeah, here's, your, here's a brick. Bless you with this brick. That's the thought process I'm expecting. And in the middle of all this, God sends Moses. And you know the story? Moses comes in, and he delivers them out of Egypt. And by the time that Moses gets done, the Egyptians are not feeling very blessed by the nation of Israel. Remember the plagues? 
Remember the last plague? The angel of death comes across Egypt and if the, the blood of the lamb hasn't been painted on your doorpost, when the angel of death came through, every firstborn child is killed. So Egypt isn't feeling very blessed by Israel and the Israelites are not feeling very blessed themselves. And so Moses leads them out and then on top of that, the whole Egyptian army chases them and they all die. So they're not feeling very blessed in this moment. Um, Egypt not feeling blessed, the people not feeling blessed. Eventually, Israel makes it to the promised land. And they come to the land of Canaan, which is occupied by a group called Canaanites. Kind of a pagan group, and Israel goes in and annihilates them. I'm guessing the Canaanites aren't feeling very blessed by the nation of Israel. You see, the promise here isn't making a lot of sense. It didn't make sense when God gave him the promise. It doesn't make sense through the history of the promise. There's no one feeling blessed by the people of Israel, and the people of Israel are not feeling blessed. This is the continued storyline. Now listen, read the Old Testament, and you'll find that there's more violence and more bloodshed. And to some, it's pretty offensive. I've had conversations, I said, with people that will read the Old Testament, come back and say, Scott, it's so bad. I mean, such bloodshed and such violence. Uh, Yeah, it's true. And at times we think, man, how in the world can this be part of the story of God, right? You know, how do we equate that? Well, I'll give you one, one thing that may help a little bit. Part of the problem that we have when we look back into the Old Testament is that we're looking at the Old Testament on this side of Christmas. You say, well, what does that mean? See, what you miss is that the Christmas story is the entrance of grace into the world. You see, we have all lived and we continue to live in an era of grace, the age of grace. We live in an era where the presence of God through the church and through the Holy Spirit, through his people, is present in our world. So when we look at that Old Testament, that's absence of that, we're going, man, it's brutal because we're looking at it on this side of Christmas. So... Abraham becomes a family, he has children, becomes a family, the family becomes a nation, the nation becomes a kingdom, and now we have the kingdom of Israel. But again, into their story, they have a king named David that comes along. And between David and Solomon, so that's David's son, between those two kings, Israel has the golden age of Israel. They have more wealth, they have more power, they have more strength. If there's ever a time where Israel had been situated in just the right position to bless the world, to be a blessing to the world and change the world, this is it. David, probably not as much as Solomon, but David's work as the warrior set, the, the, set Solomon up for, the te- for Solomon's temple for this incredible moment where there's ever a time to bless the world, Solomon has the moment and he doesn't grab the moment. In fact, what he does is he does the opposite of what God says. God says to him this. Don't forget Solomon's the wise one. And he says to Solomon, listen, you're going to marry wives from other cultures. They're going to bring pagan gods. Don't worship those gods. Don't bring those gods into the culture. Guess what Solomon did. Married pagan women. Pagan women came in with pagan gods and they began to worship those pagan gods. And so chaos comes in as the kingdom completely divides. It literally quite divides. Um, there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. They've divided their money, their, their strength, their armies. Everything divides, and they're in chaos. Now you got the northern kingdom, and they're in chaos themselves. And right above them is a group called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are getting ready to come down and wipe them off the face of the earth. And just before that happens, God sends a prophet named Isaiah. 
Now, if you read Isaiah, Isaiah has some stern words to say, but Isaiah comes into the story, and in the middle of all this, where they're just getting ready to be conquered, Isaiah adds another promise to the mix. And Isaiah says this in Isaiah 49, verse 6, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Here's, Here's what it says. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So just before they're getting conquered, God throws in another promise to Israel that says, you are going to be light. You are going to be light to all of the other people of the world, light to the Gentiles, a light to the world. Can you imagine the people of Israel? A light to the world. We can't even light up our own lives. You got to be kidding me. Another 300 years of chaos takes place. But it doesn't mean that God isn't still working. And it also doesn't mean that it gets better. It gets worse. So now you got the southern kingdom. You got a group over there called the Babylonians. And they come in and they conquer the southern kingdom with a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And what they do is this. They don't just annihilate the country. They take all of the best leaders, youngest, sharpest leaders, and they take them with them. And they put them to work in their own country. And they leave the country, the southern kingdom of Israel, in an absolute shambles. So it's in the middle of this moment where the southern kingdom is going to fall apart where God sends yet another promise and he sends a prophet named Malachi. And here's what Malachi says in the moment. He says this, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. And this is God talking. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. My name will be great among the nations. And you can imagine if you're one of the people of Israel, you're going, <laughs> no, it won't. Your name is not going to be mighty. Your name is being mocked by the nations. Your name is not, being, is not looked at in the nation's view as a good thing, it's a bad thing. Nobody looks at us, God. Nobody looks at us and says, oh, I want to worship their God. They look at us and they say, your God can't even take care of you or won't take care of you. Your name, your name, God, is not going to be great among the nations. It's going to be mocked among the nations. His, this God can't even care for his own people, so let's stop all the empty promises. We're not going to be a blessing to anyone, let alone other nations, so let's stop pretending that somehow this blessing will come to this world through us. Now, if you have a Bible, which I expect you do, and maybe not with you because I use my phone or my Bible, but if you have a, a hardcover Bible with pages, If you open that book and start turning pages, you'll start with Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and you'll hit through Joshua and Judges and Ruth and you'll hit Ezra and Nehemiah. You'll hit the the book of Job and you keep turning pages, you'll hit quite a few different, 39 different books, Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Eventually you'll come to, to Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And there's four chapters. Now, if you go to the last page of Malachi, so just pictures with me. You've got your Bible open and you're reading the last verse of Malachi. When you take and you turn that page, what's on the next page? You know, Matthew. One page, Malachi. Next page, Matthew. And do you know that that one page represents 400 years? It's 400 years from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew. 400 years and we have no biblical account of what happened in those 400 years. The Bible's silent in those 400 years. But it doesn't mean, but it doesn't mean that God's not working. There's no biblical history, but history is still taking place. And during those 400 years, a couple of things are happening. 
We've talked about this some time ago. I'll just fill in the pieces for you. And then we'll get to the end of the story. In those 400 years, the Greeks are becoming very, very strong, strength and power. There's a Greek commander and a leader named Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquers every bit of the known world. Every city, every country conquers the whole known world. And he has a plan along the way. It's a good plan. His plan is this. Not only will he conquer, but one of his plans is he wants to have a universal language. And so it helps if you conquer every place in the known world to have a known language. And, of course, that language was Greek. And so he institutes the fact that every known place in the world now would speak Greek. He puts that in place. But over those hundreds of years, there's another group that's gaining strength and power, and that's Rome. Rome's got a military, and they're beginning to conquer all the places where the Greeks held. And Alexander the Great, he's dead, and he's done, and he loses his ability to control. But now the Romans take over. And with it, they had a plan as well. The Romans had a plan, and that plan was peace. Now, that should strike you as a little odd. You think about the Roman Empire. I mean, these were ruthless people. But they used their ruthless hand to bring peace. Think about it. If you conquer all the other armies in the world, no one's having wars. So all of a sudden, there's no war in the world. And they set up police force. So all of a sudden, it's safe everywhere. So if someone does something, there's going to be a consequence. When you conquer all the places and you have your men everywhere stationed, all of a sudden, they implemented laws. Even travel. Now it was safe to travel. They put all that in place. And you might recall this story. I've told it a number of years ago. Pompey, Pompey the Great, commander for Rome. They conquer all the area and they finally come to Jerusalem and it's time to conquer Jerusalem and they take Jerusalem and conquer it. And Pompey, the story tells us, rode his horse. We believe, we don't have this one firm, we believe he rode his horse right up the southern steps of the Temple Mount, which the temple is now restored. The southern steps were massive. He rode his horse right up the steps of the Temple Mount, got off his horse, walked up to the temple, walked into the temple, where he shouldn't be going anyway, not being Jewish. But on top of that, he walks into the place called the Holy of Holies. Remember that place? the place where only the high priest could go once a year. And when the high priest went in, he went in with a rope tied on his ankle because if he died, if you went in, you, you would, God would strike you dead. So they had to pull him out if he were to die. Pompey walks up, opens the curtain of the Holy of Holies, and he walks right in. And guess what? He doesn't die. And the Jewish people are dumbfounded. Where is this God that's going to bless us? A pagan just walked into the temple. Now, why did he walk in that temple? Kind of simple, best we can tell. He just wanted to see what their God looked like. You see, you got to get historical context here. Every place they would conquer, every nation had gods and idols, and they usually kept their gods and idols in some kind of sacred place. Rome didn't care. If you think about the Rome history, Rome didn't care that they had gods. They just want, he just wanted to see what they looked like. So he walks in, and it's an empty room. And I'm thinking he's, his thought process might be this. What a pathetic religion this is. They don't even have anything. They're worshiping empty space. They worship this spirit God. They don't even have an idol to worship. And you need to know that that's the moment from that point on, from that moment, now Israel is under Roman rule. Rome conquers Israel, conquers Jerusalem, and now it's under the rule of Rome. Great nation? Hardly. Blessing to the nations, can't even bless themselves. A light to the world, they can't even light up their own lives. Living in darkness. God's name to be worshipped by the nations. God's name was being mocked by the nation. 
God's promise to Abraham and all the other promises that he'd given through those hundreds and hundreds of years seemed to be like cruel, cruel jokes. And then after hundreds of years, we have this verse, Luke chapter 2. And in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And now we're into the Christmas story that we know under Roman rule. Things were as hopeless as they could possibly be. God's promise to Abraham was so out of reach, no one could even possibly fathom that those promises could come true. All the promises, absolutely impossible. But the Apostle Paul seems to capture the moment best, and he captures it in a way that most of us don't stop to think about And certainly they wouldn't have thought about it. And here's what he writes in Galatians 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Let me read it for you in a little different translation. It says this. But when the right time came, God sent his son, who was born of a woman, God sent him to buy our freedom because even though we didn't know it, we were slaves to sin. He did that so that he could adopt us into his family as his very own children. When the set time had come, I want you to hear this as I close. What that means is this. When God had everything in place, when God had everything set up just perfectly the way it needed to be, then and only then would he send his son into the world and fulfill his promise to Abraham. But he's not going to do that until everything was in place. You say, well, what was in place? Well, a common language. The entire world now spoke Greek. The Romans came in with a highway system unlike anything the world had seen. You could walk, you could travel to virtually any place in the known world safely because don't forget they had a police force as well. So you could travel and be safe and get anywhere. And if you didn't want to walk, you could take a ship because what Rome also put in place was a shipping port and a sailing port plan where across the Mediterranean in every major city there was a port and you could take a ship and you could get to anywhere where you needed to go. And don't forget Roman peace. No wars. Safe travel. You see, when God had in place all of the process necessary to take this story, when God had in place a language that was universal so that the story of Jesus could be told to every single person in the known world and they would hear the story because they all spoke Greek and they didn't speak Greek hundreds of years earlier. When God had in place a travel system so that anyone with the story of Jesus could get anywhere else and tell the story. When God had in place the ships that could take followers of Jesus to any place around the world and tell the story of Jesus, that's when he fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And that's when God sent an angel named Gabriel to Nazareth to announce to a young woman that God keeps his promise. And what's interesting, that messenger went to Galilee 
to a town named Nazareth to talk to a young girl named Mary. And he says to Mary, greetings, Mary. The Lord is with you. Listen, friends, no one in Israel believed that God was with them. Listen carefully. Look at the history. There was no history that they could look at that would testify to the fact that God was with them. So when the angel says God is with you, what a stretch to the imagination. Because there was no evidence to prove that to be. And then God actually has another Abraham moment with Mary. He says to Mary, you're going to have a son. He'll be called the son of God. And God will give him the throne of his father David. And he rule. He will rule over Jacob's descendants forever and forever. And his kingdom, it will never end. And Mary had the same response that Abraham had, the same response that you and I would have, and that is this. How can that be? It is too impossible for me to think that that can be true. But Mary made a decision. She made a decision in a moment where the circumstances made no sense. She made a decision to trust Jesus, to trust God, I should say. To trust the message that she'd received. Nine months later, a Savior was born into the world. And God did exactly what he promised Abraham. The world would be blessed through Abraham and through his family. A Jewish Savior would come into the world. This Jewish God would be worshipped throughout the world. We worship the Jewish God. The God of Abraham. The God of Jacob. The God of Isaac. You see, friends, the reason why the Jewish scriptures are so precious to us is because they are the cocoon from which the Savior came. So that's why when we read the Old Testament, we just don't say, ah, it's the Old Testament. No, it's the storyline of God's fulfilling his promises. Do you know what makes Christmas, the Christmas story, so unbelievable? Is that it's so unbelievable. When I hear someone say, I think the disciples had to make up some story to give Christ credibility. This story does not give Jesus credibility. I mean, you would never create this story. Very sincerely, this story is so out there, it has to be true. It's so unbelievable, it becomes believable. No one can make this up. On top of that, no one over thousands of years could orchestrate everything to fall perfectly in place as it has. Do your research. You'll find historically everything is accurate and true. What does that mean for us? The Christmas story began at least 2,000 years before that first Christmas morning when baby, when the Jesus was born. And the Christmas story is still unfolding 2,000 plus years after that first morning. And here's what it means today. Some of you here today right now, all of us, but some of you, are in a moment of time right now where you are facing something that makes no sense. Something that has your heart broken. Something that has you confused and you can't possibly see how this can be a part of any kind of plan. Any plan, let alone a good plan. Some of you desperately need to hear these next few words. Christmas reminds you that God, when he is silent, is not idle. 
some of you need to hear that in the moment of time when it makes no sense, the God who keeps his word is working behind the scenes in ways you can't see for your good and to fulfill his plan. Some of you this day need to do what Abraham did, what a young girl did, and said, God, it seems impossible, but I will trust you. You see, there are times in our lives where the circumstances scream out to us that God can't possibly care. You're wrong. He does. Circumstances in our lives will sometimes shout to us that he can't possibly be active. He is. He can't possibly be present. He's present. And he's working on your behalf. God can't be trusted. So when you look at your manger scene, when you look at your Christmas tree and all your lights, when you listen to Bing Crosby, get past Bing Crosby and stop and think, this Christmas story tells me I can trust him because he keeps his word. Stand, please, let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are some here this morning whether in person or listening, that need to hear the fact that they can trust you with whatever it is that they are carrying right now, whatever burden, whatever moment, whatever impossible thing that's before them, they can trust you. Encourage them with that truth. For every one of us, there's going to be a day in this coming weeks and year where we're gonna have that moment. And might we remember the Christmas story. Oh, the world needed a little Christmas. They didn't need a little Christmas. They need a lot of Christmas. So do we. So remind us that every time we think of the Christmas story, we are hearing the story of the faithfulness of God, that you, Father, you keep your word, and you gave to us Jesus. Encourage us with that truth, and send us on our way today with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.